we've been doing a study on the false prophets. Second Peter chapter number two. The entire chapter is about these false prophets. And we get to the very end and we'll look at verse 20 through 21. Second Peter 2, 20, 21 and 22. For it says for this, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So some very interesting things in verse 21 and 22. It says, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow or pig that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for an opportunity to open your word. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would teach us the importance of having assurance of salvation. I pray that you would teach us the importance of simply following your word. That we would not know the truth and yet turn away from it. God, I pray that you would help me as I preach. I pray, God, that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray, God, that you would forgive me for sin. Empty me of self, Lord. I pray, God, that you would speak to each person who's here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a warning to humbly receive God's word. It's describing these false prophets. And remember, when we're looking at these false prophets, it is a description of all false prophets, but really it's a description of these false prophets. It's Sometimes uh, someone may ask a question as we've gone through this study. Does that mean that every false prophet is like the ones that are described in here? And I think that it would be reasonable to assume that if someone knows the truth of God's word and they turn away from it, obviously they will be judged for that, as it says here in the passage. But when it's describing false teachers, these false teachers, it's specifically talking about how they know the truth, but they've never been converted in their own heart. They've never actually trusted Christ as their Savior. They're describing these teachers who know the truth, but they have not trusted Christ as their Savior. And then they, instead of repenting or accepting Christ as their Savior and allowing that faith to change them, they instead take the truth and modify it and change it so that now they come up with a new teaching where they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They change the, they change salvation. They appeal to people's flesh and they're now teaching this and they are not 
as the Bible says in verse number 17, it says they are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. They are teaching a hope or they are giving a hope, but it's a false hope. They basically take the essential elements of the gospel or the essential elements of true Christianity or of true religion, if we want to think of it that way, in the broadest sense. They take these out so that if somebody follows them and believes them, there's no power for them. There is no lasting hope. There is no life change. There is nothing where they can look back on and say, I followed this teacher. I have uh, accepted their, their teaching. And as a result, I now have living hope. I now have true hope. We have to remember that if somebody trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, their life from that day forward is different. There is no such thing in Scripture as somebody getting saved and it virtually having no effect on their life. That does not exist. Their life should be different. And we're not going to go through every detail of how it should be different. And we have to understand it is a process of growth. Just like a seed goes into the ground, if that seed begins to, uh, the Bible says that the, that the seed will die and then it will begin to germinate and then it slowly begins to push up. It doesn't become a tree overnight or it doesn't become a stock of corn producing fruit overnight, but it begins the journey from that day if it is truly going to produce fruit, if it really is going to germinate Eventually, something is going on underneath the, the surface of the soil. Eventually, it pushes up through the surface of the soil. You see the little tiny green shoot, no matter what it is. If it's, a, if it's a one day going to become a magnificent maple tree, or if it's going to become a stalk of corn, or, or if it's going to become a little, a little carrot, eventually that little green shoot pops up, and then it just begins to grow, and it begins to grow, and it begins to grow. We can see here that there are some who don't grow because they've never been saved. That's what it's describing here. There are those in life, the Bible describes them as carnal Christians, where they don't put themselves in the right environment to grow. We recently got the most beautiful plant. This beautiful little potted plant. It's called a fuchsia. How I many of you guys know what a fuchsia is? A couple of you. Good. They're incredible. Matter of fact, uh, on my phone, you can't, it's recording right now, but I took a photo of the flowers and it's my screensaver. It looks like somebody would guess, oh, that's Miss April's phone, but it's mine. I love flowers. They're incredible, right? Uh, they're incredible, I said. No. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, beautiful. But the thing about this particular flower is you have to keep it in the shade. Right. That's what the uh, the the people that sold it to us said. You have to keep it in the shade. Otherwise, if you put it out in the sun. What's going to happen? Is it's going to it's going to get dried out. It's gonna, too much sun. It'll it'll kill it. Right. We have to understand that though we can never place ourselves uh, as a Christian in a in an environment where we can kill our salvation. That's not possible. OK, if we've really trusted Christ as our savior, we are saved and we are saved forever. The Bible says that Jesus died to give us everlasting life. Okay? But we can either choose to place ourselves in a place where we're hearing God's word, we have Christian community that's encouraging us, we're reading our Bibles, we're praying, we're witnessing to other people. We can put ourselves in the most 
healthy place spiritually so that we can grow as much as God wants us to grow. There are others who do not do that for themselves. They don't make those choices. They put themselves in an environment where they are surrounded by fleshly temptations. They live mostly according to the old life. They don't necessarily go to church. They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. And they don't grow. And maybe even by looking at them on the outside, you question whether or not this person is truly saved. But here's the thing is that inside the seed is sprouting. The grace of God cannot truly touch a heart and it never change that person. We have to remember that it is our heart. It is the inside of us. It is our spirit that changes first. We are changed first from the inside and then it comes on the outside. That is the very definition of grace. If you go to a a large dictionary called the Strong's Concordance and you look up the Greek definition of the word grace, it says these words, the divine influence upon a heart and its reflection in a light, meaning if we truly receive God's grace and we accept the truth of God's word, and we really believe the gospel, it first changes our heart. That's what it means when we say that we've asked Christ to come into our heart. We are giving our heart to him. We're giving him our deepest and truest self of who we are. Yes, there is a mental agreement. There is an intellectual assent. There is an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, and we accept that. But I want us to see a few verses in the book of James. It's very close to Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter. But James is right before that. James 2 and verse 1. What we're seeing in this passage when it comes to the false teachers is that there was an external part of their religion But it was never grace. It was never from the inside. God had never truly changed their life because they wouldn't let him. They only took the outside of some things of Christianity and pretended to be a Christian so that they could come and trick some believers that were not versed in doctrine. They were simple-minded. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know the truth, but they looked enough like a Christian and acted enough like a Christian and lived their life enough like a Christian that it was somewhat believable that they were kind of maybe sort of one of us. But God teaches us from his word that they never truly had trusted Christ as their savior. The Bible says in James 2, speaking about faith, Verse 14 says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food? Now it gives us an example. It gives us a statement, almost like a thesis statement. And then it gives us an example. And then it goes and begins to defend that statement. Right? So he says, if somebody says they have faith. 
So it's just a spoken thing. Yes, I have faith. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But then it begins to talk about, well, what is the fruit of that? Is there any visible fruit in your life? Is there any visible lifestyle choices or decisions or changes that the faith that you say you have has literally changed your life? It says in verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked, no clothes, and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, meaning you're just giving them your words. Right? Do we see this? Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? What is he saying? And we'll look at a few more verses in just a moment. But up to this point, he's saying faith without works is dead. You can say that you're saved, but if there is nothing in your life that reflects that. If there's nothing in your life that reflects that. That's cause for concern. This is really the, the topic of the message today. Genuine faith creates genuine change in someone's life. Without question, if this was a bit more of an informal setting, right about now, someone, we would have two, one, two, three, four, five hands raise up. What about this? What about that? What about this person in my life? What about that person? Pastor, are you talking about this person on TV? Are you talking about this person that writes books? Are you talking about this person that has podcasts because they seem like they're super famous? Are they a false prophet? Are you telling me that this or that person, that this particular lady teacher, or this particular man pastor over here, whatever, or this particular person over on the other side, are you telling us that these people aren't genuinely saved? We have to understand that God's, God is teaching us about these false prophets. These people who saw the false prophets may not have necessarily known that they were false prophets. You can't, generally you can't look at somebody and say, yes or no, they're saved. That's for us to know for ourselves. God's word is for us to know for ourselves if I am genuinely saved in my own heart, do I know it? It's for me to look at and say, in my life, is the fruit there? Is there any evidence that God has come in and changed my life by his grace? And James 2 is talking about that genuine faith results in change. It results in work. It's not just words that we say. Here's a question. These false prophets, did they have the words? Yes, they had the words. They were believable, guys. They were believable. But over time, did time prove that they were genuine believers? Time eventually proved they were not genuine believers. In the natural world, does time prove if a particular seed is a particular type of seed? Yeah, it does. I'm going to take this seed, I'm going to put it in the ground, 
and this person at the store told me this particular type of seed is going to produce an apple tree or it's going to produce an orange tree. Or it's going to produce corn or it's going to produce uh, parsley or whatever it is. Oh, if I give it some time and, and the conditions are, 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 are such that it should be able to produce that. What happens if it starts coming up and it's like, hey, he said it was apples. It's not apples. It's not apples. It's an orange tree. Well, guess what? Toronto's not the best place to have an orange tree. Right? We have to be able to look at our own faith and say, I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as as my Savior. And biblical faith in Christ produces a changed life. And you can track that over time. And somebody initially, maybe they say they got saved and they, they, they use the right words and outside visibly they're like, oh yeah, they're genuinely saved. And then over time, what happens? The growth gets less and less and less and less. And as we see, it uses the example of a dog. This is gross. Of a dog going back to his vomit. And according to this passage that we've been studying, what was it that these Gentile believers were going, unbelievers, these false prophets, what were they going back to? The love of money and the love of pleasure. Sexual pleasure is what it talks about in many, many, many times it's talking about that. They're going back to their old sinful lifestyle. When we genuinely get saved, God's grace changes our relationship with sin. It changes our relationship from the old us. And if we say immediately, I'm tr- I've trusted Christ as my Savior and I'm learning the words to use in church and I am uh, acting the way a Christian should act and I'm doing this, over time it should be an increasing growth in grace where it's not just something from the outside, but it's really who we are as a person. Jesus really does live inside of me. The Holy Spirit really does dwell within me. There is a new nature inside of me that is pushing me to read my Bible, that is pushing me to pray, hey, that is pushing me to sacrifice, to live the Christian life. Yes, we could be out doing this or that on a Sunday, but there's some part of me inside, and maybe a fleshly part of me wants to do that. But there's a new nature in par- uh, inside that wants to go to church and hear the preaching. And of course, during the week, as your pastor, sometimes I'm thinking, hey, I'd rather kind of slough off some of my study and just go, and, and, and I'd rather go out and do this or that or another, but there's a part of me that wants to go down in the basement. And spend time in God's Word studying. There's a part of me that wants to know Jesus. There's a part of me that wants to tell other people about Jesus even though I'm afraid. There's a part of me that wants to read the Bible and understand it even though it's hard sometimes. And sometimes I make the wrong choice and watch movies instead. Or play too long on my cell phone and, and, and we, watch, we watch YouTube or something instead. And yes, there are times when I want to pray and I want to connect to God in prayer and I want to bring those burdens and some, but sometimes I make the wrong choice and I do. You see, there's a fight. There's a choice. 
in someone that's not saved, there's no fight. There's no, there isn't a new nature. Listen, it's just artificial. How silly would it be for me to take this home? And it's pretty. It's pretty enough. Can we say this about something that's artificial? It's too pretty. Can we agree with that? Artificial Christianity is a little too polished. Oh, it's a little too pretty. It's a little too perfect. Jesus came to save sinners. And if you find that you make mistakes, that means you're probably a genuine believer. If you're not perfect, it probably means you're genuine. Well, that person, I, and, and we're, not, we're not here to point fingers at, any, at anybody. We're just talking about genuine and artificial. We throw, and sometimes we're a little too rough, we throw this in the cage every week for storage. You couldn't do that with a real plant. Artificial Christianity, you can just put it away. Come on now. When it's convenient. And when you bring it out, You just fluff it up a little. Oh, there's a pastor. Better stop saying that word. It's so funny. And I've never seen anybody here do this. But every once in a while out in the world, somebody will find, find out I'm a pastor because we're just, you know, we're just chatting or whatever. I'm like, oh, what, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry. Look, it's one thing to offend me. It's another. You're not cussing my name. You're cussing his name. Hello. If you've just got religion and not a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you learn the rules and the social etiquette and the right people to dust it off and say, oh, look how polished. I know all the rules. I know when to button, when to not button. Come on now. This world is dying for genuine Christianity. They need to see genuine Christianity. They don't need to see perfection. They don't need to see artificial. They don't need to see people that just learn the rules for their religious club. They need to see something that's got life. Something that needs to be protected to a degree because it is fragile. And we can't just, like that beautiful fuchsia plant, we can't just let it out in the sun in the world and listen to whatever music and be around whatever friends and drink whatever and watch whatever on TV. We can't do that. Why? Because this is fragile. Not that I'm going to lose my salvation, but I care deeply about my faith. Why? Because it's deep inside and it's a part of the fabric of who I am as a person. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He paid for my sin. Why would I go back to that vomit? Why would I go back to that vomit? We have a puppy dog. 
And he was really cute until the first time that he puked something up. He'd been eating like trees or leaves or grass or something. You guys are about to get grossed out. Oh, Oliver. What are you doing? Kids were crying. I'm just kidding. Unbelievers can put on the religion. When it's the right time to do it. They can modify their religion and even tell other people a modified version. There's no conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing deep inside that says you had better not. You had better not. How did those, how did those martyrs, we had a conversation earlier this week with someone. How did those, how did for hundreds of years, how did genuine believers stand before a king or stand before a Caesar in the Roman Empire or stand before someone that literally held their life in their hand? And they said, if you don't recant the name of Jesus Christ, you will die. And most of the time it was slow and painful. Hundreds of Christians were slowly burned to death. Burned alive. Tied to a stake and burned alive. Some of the apostles, they were killed through beheading or something like this. Crucifixion, of course, was a very long process. Very agonizing way to die. That's how Jesus died, obviously. The apostle Peter was supposed to have been crucified upside down. How could they? Stand there. Calmly. Look that government official or the king or the Caesar in their face and say, not with a bad attitude, but just with calm conviction. I will not say out loud that Jesus Christ is not my Lord and Savior. I will not say that. In some cases, all they had to do to save their own life was to take a tiny little pinch of incense and throw it on a fire. Saying, is saying Caesar is Lord. That's all they wanted. They refused. Why? Because there was something inside that was greater than the threat of that potentate. The Holy Spirit of God gave them the confidence. The Holy Spirit of God gave them the boldness. There was something inside that was bigger than them. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. They accepted it by faith. And it saved their soul. It wasn't something artificial they put on and put off like it was like they were going to a party or like they were just pretending to be the right person in front of that, in, 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 in front of that particular crowd because it was a, it wasn't the world version of religion. How many Hindus, how many of my, how many of my Hindu friends in their own country would never eat beef or pork? And as soon as they get on an airplane and go somewhere else, they order the biggest hamburger on the menu. In your country, that's your grandmother. They believe in reincarnation. Oh, pastor, you're making fun. I'm trying to expose artificial religion for what it actually is. And if someone is genuinely born again, they cannot 
pull it out for the right crowd and throw it back in a locker in the dark for the rest of the week. They may struggle with it. They may not grow the way they should. They may not necessarily make all the right choices. They may have difficulties. They may, they may struggle. They may be shy, but something's in there that's begging to get out. The real gospel seed has taken root. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved their soul. There is something that's different about them, and they don't understand it all. And they don't always make the right choices. But something's in there. You see the Apostle Peter, like we spoke about in 10 o'clock hour, standing before this small crowd. Just a small crowd. The Bible says that one man comes up to him and says, Oh, I, I, I think you're also a Jesus, denies. Somebody else comes up and says, No, the way that you're speaking, I think you're also with them. He denies. The Bible says a small child, a little girl comes up to him and says, No, I saw you with Jesus. Man, he just lets it rip. He starts cussing and he starts swearing and he says, I know not the man. But then Jesus looked on it because it was just across a small courtyard. Remember, in, the, in, in, those, in that particular area of the world, in that particular time, they didn't have yards outside. The house was built like in a square and the courtyard was in the middle. And Peter was on one side and Jesus was on the other side. It couldn't have been more than 10 or 15, 20 meters away. Jesus heard every word. Jesus saw the whole thing. And the Bible says that he looked on Peter. And immediately, conviction came across Peter's heart. See, because Jesus wasn't just another man. Jesus wasn't just another religious leader. Jesus was Peter's Savior and his Lord. And the Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Everybody else standing around, they, they could mock him and it meant nothing to them. The Roman soldiers they could put a crown of thorns on it. They could take a reed representing a scepter and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and mock him and beat that crown of thorns into his skull. It meant nothing to them. He was just another Jewish religious leader that had gotten too big for his britches. But to Peter, it smote him at his very heart. There was something different. He had trusted Christ as his Savior, and Jesus had changed his life. And he couldn't just take it off and put it on and take it off and put it on. If you're genuinely saved, if you make a mistake as a Christian, either a small one or a big one, it bothers you inside. And we don't always make the right choice and we don't always do the right thing. But there's something inside of us that wants to live for the approval of Jesus Christ. We don't understand everything and we don't know everything. And sometimes we don't make the right choices. There's something inside that pushes us to say, He is my Lord and He is my Savior. There can be somebody that has a golden voice, can stand before churches and sing. And everybody says, wow. 
I feel something when they sing. Man, God uses you, and yet that person, they're artificial. It doesn't mean that those who have talent are artificial. I'm not saying that whatsoever. I'm just trying to say that just because somebody may have a natural talent for something, and they may do it in a church service. You look at a lot of the worldly singers nowadays, and they say, where did you get your start? Many of them say in church. And yet they go out there and they live these wicked lifestyles. Like the dog returning to the vomit. How can you say that you're a Christian when you have all of these girls and you have all these drugs and you live these wicked, wicked lives? You never one time stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, much less you sing songs about everything that Jesus is supposed to have saved you from. You cannot serve God in mammon or money. And yet for the fame and for the money, they're willing to put Jesus aside. And when the time is right, when the crowd is right, oh, Jesus, oh yeah, my background in church, oh yeah. I was raised in church. It absolutely bothers me to the deepest parts when people who live 99.9% of their lives as leaders of wickedness occasionally want to come out in public and point to God. Who do you think you are? He means that little to you? That you're willing to sell your soul? You're willing to sell your soul? Fake. Fake. Fake! You cannot live a life of eating vomit. You cannot live a life of eating vomit and try to prove that you belong to the King of Kings. It does not... Oh, Pastor, you're talking about my favorite celebrity. You Look, this is an opportunity for us to... We are way too protective of celebrities, by the way. I feel like that there's almost, in a sense, nowadays, it's almost like we feel like they're almost our personal friends nowadays a little bit because of social media, and they post a cute little picture of them, and here's my kids. Their job is to make money. And in some cases, we're not saying they're not nice people. We're just trying to say that not everybody that talks about Christianity is a genuine believer. Pastor, why are you taking so much time on this false prophet thing? Because we live in a day and age where people are led to believe that you have to, your set of beliefs must include everyone. It has to include the approval of everyone. Or somehow it's not a genuine belief. Christ died for everyone. For God so loved the world. I want genuine Christianity. I want a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know the truth because it's the truth that makes us free. At that particular time period, you had two groups of people primarily. You had Jews You had Gentiles. From a biblical standpoint, that's what you had. And the cultures were very sharply different. The Jews had many 
many, many religious rules that they would follow. They had a specific way to dress. They had very strict dietary laws. They even had rules about who you could accept a drink of water from. Because you would be religiously or ceremonially impure if you inadvertently had taken a glass of water from somebody who was not the right person. Which, again, helps us to understand even a bit more in John chapter 4, when the woman of Samaria asked Jesus, you're asking water from me? Because so many Jewish men would have never taken a glass of water from a Samaritan woman. Or from a Samaritan, much less a woman. There was sharp uh, discrimination against women in a lot of these cultures. And they had very strict rules that guarded every part of their life. On the other side, you had many of the Gentile cultures that were very flesh-driven. Just whatever you felt like doing, you could do it. In the book of Corinthians, the Bible talks a lot about sexual sin and sexual practices. And in the particular town of Corinth, Corinth was a city and is a city, but it was such a loose city morally that they, that girls from that city were known as Corinthian girls. It was almost like if you want to find the loosest girl with the loosest reputation, go to Corinth. And in other cities, they would actually call loose women Corinthian girls. This was the kind of culture. Anything you could possibly think of, anything you could afford, anything that you could steal, anything that you could desire, you can do, you can find, no big deal. So you have two massive cultures on both sides. Very, very strict religious rules. And on the other side, extremely loose, whatever. We'll finish with this. The Bible says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. You have someone from one of these loose backgrounds or someone from this strict background. They hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and the freedom that he's offering. Not by works of righteousness. They don't have to follow all of these rules. You just have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or on this side, the flesh that you've indulged in so long, now you've created an enormous appetite that you can't control. It now controls you. And you are a slave to your own passions. You no longer have control over your own life. And Jesus comes with a message of liberty. And he sets us free from the bondage of trying to obey all of these strict rules to go to heaven because that's not going to work. And he also sets us free from our own selves because that is bondage. These teachers knew this message and rejected it in their heart. Became artificial in order to make money and satisfy their own flesh. And then over time, their life showed that their profession 
was artificial. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered under him. God teaches us that if somebody knows the gospel, they understand the gospel, and they reject the gospel, that they are pronouncing a judgment upon themselves. It doesn't necessarily mean they can't get saved in the future. It means that their life will typically become more hard. Their heart will harden and become more obstinate against God. To know the truth and to reject the truth is to allow the ground that was once once soft to receive the gospel truth to become harder and harder and harder. There is a warning in here for us as well. One, do you know that you're saved? I would never want to, to shed doubt on anybody's salvation. The goal of this message and the goal of this scripture, because it's just scripture I'm preaching, the, the goal is never for us to just walk around in doubt. The goal is for us to take it seriously so that we know for sure that we have trusted Christ as our Savior. Here's my question. Do you have any evidence that you're saved? For yourself. Can you give five things that have changed in your life since you made a profession of faith? Some people, their life has changed radically. They've stopped drinking. They've stopped going to parties. They've stopped listening to certain types of music. They've stopped certain types of friends. They've got, they've got a hunger for the word of God and so on and so forth. I grew up in church, so my story isn't that I stopped all of these this party lifestyle. I never did any of that stuff. But you know what changed in my life? My attitude towards God's word changed. It went from like, eh, eh, kind of not really, sort of, I already know that. So, man, I'm, I'm hungry. So, would somebody teach me, please? Somebody help me understand this. I want to know. Something else that changed when I got saved, I wanted to tell somebody about Jesus. I mean, I was terrified. But man, there was something deep inside that says, I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell somebody. There's also a difference in your heart. Before, I used to run towards the sin. It's like, hey, you know, let's try to, you know, not, 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 not too deep so I don't get in too much trouble, but let's kind of dabble, let's kind of do this. But now, the Holy Spirit is like, man, I'm running the opposite direction. Sometimes I trip and fall, and I make bad decisions, and we all do. But if someone's genuinely saved, their attitude towards sin changes. And the biggest one is, there's something inside that changed when it came to Jesus. Before I was saved, and this is just my own personal testimony, growing up in church, I didn't even really like to say the name Jesus. There is power in that name. There is power in the name of Jesus. And I just didn't even like to say it. I didn't like the way it felt on my tongue when it rolled off my tongue. Jesus. I didn't want to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was more about Jesus. I kind of knew those stories from Sunday school. No thanks. But when I got saved, 
my attitude towards Jesus changed completely. From somebody that I just kind of wanted to keep a distance from, I kind of know him, to now it's like, man, I want to know him. You ever wanted to get to know somebody and just kind of hang around them until it's awkward? That was me. Jesus, can I just hang out with you until it's awkward? Here's the cool thing. It's never awkward because he wants us to know him. My attitude towards God's word changed. I didn't want to read the Gospels. I only wanted to read Proverbs because it was kind of like wisdom and just good life advice. But after I trusted Christ as my Savior, my attitude towards God's word was different. What about you? I just shared my own personal story. If you were to take a track record, that's what we're talking about here. These guys had a track record. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. They knew how to do the polish. It was artificial. But their secret lies, didn't feel bad about it. Didn't feel bad about it at all. When they did come to church, they were just looking to take advantage and make some money. Twist the truth a little bit. Didn't bother them to twist the truth. Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. It's been often asked if you were brought into a courtroom and you were required to prove through evidence that you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? These guys, it was artificial. It was all external, nothing inside. They said they had faith, but... Their lives, there was no change. Matter of fact, it just got worse. The more you looked into their private lives, the more horrifying it was. And friend, once again, I would never attempt to cast doubt on anybody's salvation. Either you are definitely saved or you are definitely not. And I would just ask you to be honest with yourself. There's a difference between a Christian who makes mistakes, feels terrible like Peter did, goes back and confesses, by God's grace moves forward. By the way, Christians can, can become addicted to something and struggle with that. Unbelievers don't care. It doesn't bother them because the Holy Spirit is not inside. There's no conviction. There is no depth of remorse and feeling like you really messed up. God, I'm so sorry. Please help me. Please forgive me. Help me to grow. Help me to learn to have victory. Nothing is like that for an unbeliever. If you, if you died today, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven or do you have some doubt? you have some doubt? Sometimes we just let people push us into coming to church. That's okay. Sometimes that's the start. But that shouldn't be what carries us through. There should be something inside of you that wants, that wants to come. Is that you? 
I'm going to ask this question. If you know for sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven, would you slip your hand up? Now, I'm the only one that's looking. I'm looking. Everybody's eyes are closed. Thank you so much. You can put your hands down. Appreciate that honesty. You say, Pastor Corey, I don't know for sure, but I'd like for you to pray for me. And that's what I'll do. I'll not call your name. I'll not ask you to stand up. I will not embarrass you. Raising your hand makes no noise, and everybody's eyes are closed. Say, Pastor Corey, I'd like for you to pray for me because I'm just not sure. Would you slip your hand up right now so I can see that? Pray for you. Anybody like that here today? Thank you so much for your honesty. Christian, you know for sure that you're saved. What's our takeaway? One, this is wisdom for us to know not to trust everything that comes our way that might be painted in Christian colors. It might be artificial. Let's use wisdom. Let's not be too quick into trusting a teaching from an unknown teacher too quick. Friend, if you know for sure that you're saved, let's live for him. You failed. I've failed. We've all failed. He loves us. He has delivered us from the pollutions of this world. He does not intend for a child of his to be like a dog that returns to his vomit. He's given us victory and liberty from living that life. Let's walk in victory. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God's grace is greater than your past. He's greater than your addiction. He's greater than any kind of background, any kind of vomit, so to speak. Any kind of mistake. Let's walk in victory. Everybody stand, please, if you would.